Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll jump into it. God, thank you for uh, your word. <laughs> and as, as confusing as revelation can be, Lord, thank you for it. Thank you that it um, is a comfort in some sense to our hearts. It is a warning in other sense. And, uh, and yet we're pointed to the fact that you're utterly in control of absolutely all things. And so, God, I pray that you would give us clarity when it comes to your word as we dive into it. And God, we thank you for what has taken place this past week with the youth. God, I pray that uh, you would utilize the time that they had together in hearing your word. We, we confess that your word revives the soul. It's what makes wise the simple. And so, God, I pray that uh, this time at youth camp will be something impactful, that it, that it would be seeds dropped in the soil of hearts that would actually last something of a lifetime, that they could remember back and remember specific things that were taught and things that happened that shaped kind of their spiritual well-being in you. And so, God, I, I pray that you would do a great work in our kids. I pray that the gospel would move mightily upon their hearts and that they would truly then follow you as you've called them to. We pray these things then in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Psalm, or, uh, Revelation 15 and 16. Do things get any better? No. <laughs> no. No. Things are not exactly getting better when it comes uh, to the book of Revelation, another cycle of judgments is what we have seen. And just to kind of set a little context for kind of the issue that we're going to get at is, is if you have ever kind of helped anyone like come to a place of faith in Jesus, inevitably what you've come to encounter in that discussion is issues surrounding sin and suffering. The question of God's justice always comes into play. And for Christians, we walk this road sometimes having doubts and questions ourselves as it relates to sin and suffering and God's justice in it all. This final cycle of judgment will get particularly at that point. Is God's wrath right? We'll see that in a moment. But for now, we got to do some uh, review because we haven't been in the book of Revelation for uh, two, three weeks now. So uh, may, again, let's, let's interact. Small crew this morning. I'm not, I'm not just going to do some sort of manuscript thing. Well, let's interact about this. What kind of genre is the book of Revelation? Do you guys remember? All right. All right. It's apocalyptic. I heard that. <laughs> All right, it's apocalyptic. And what in the world does apocalyptic mean? All right, so, yes, end of the world. Uh, so what, what's the movies nowadays? I mean, you got The Walking Dead and these apocalyptic doomsday kind of uh, movies and seasons. And, and so the world is all about the apocalypse. However, when it comes to the Bible, the literary genre of apocalyptic isn't necessarily doomsday end of the world stuff. However, the book of Revelation talks about the end times. Do you get that qualification? Like our world hears apocalyptic literature or the word apocalyptic and it's like, oh man, doomsday stuff. You know, dig out your bunker and get all your supplies and guns together. Um, 
That's not what the Bible refers to. The apocalyptic genre in scripture is actually a dream and vision genre. And we all know, by way of dreams and visions, they get pretty kind of kooky at sometimes, right? You have all kinds of weird stuff happening in your dreams. And it maps on to really what happens in scripture that God comes to his prophets in dreams and visions. And he utilizes, he employs imagery, just like we have imagery even in our own our own dreams, right? That's kind of strange and kind of weird and trying to figure out exactly what it is is, is difficult. And, and it's difficult for us as we would turn to the book of Revelation and see that God utilizes this apocalyptic genre, this genre of visions for visions and dreams. And it's just replete. Like we've said before, it's this parade of images that just doesn't stop. You're constantly say what? Say what? What is this? I don't understand that, you know? It, and, and it's all about judgment. You know, if you were at an actual parade and you just watched all the floats go by, it's like, oh, this is nice, this is nice, this is nice. You, you can kind of like deal with the constant ongoing niceties of a, of a parade. But when it comes to the parade of images that are found in the book of Revelation, it's constantly dark and dim. It's wrath. It's judgment. Hundred pound hail falling and crushing people. All right, great. Sounds great. Can't wait, right? That's what it is. And it can be exhausting, can it? And it's part of the reason why at times John will kind of pull back from all the images and deal with the church and encourage the church because as the world comes to a close and we see all things renewed, we see something of intense wrath and judgment that God pours out on the world. So he utilizes this apocalyptic genre. He utilizes imagery. Now, the arrangement of the book, the arrangement of the book, as we've said before, is three cycles of seven, right? And part of the, the reasoning for this big view stuff is, is to kind of create the comparison and the contrast between the 666 and the 777, three cycles of seven, three cycles of perfection, of completeness versus, remember, the dragon and the beast and the false prophet, right? Who, they, they, it's the mark on the forehead, it's the mark on the hand of 666. It's a triad of incompleteness. It represents the counterfeit trinity, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And so you, you see this contrast, three cycles of seven against the incompleteness of the beast, the counterfeit beast, the counterfeit god, if you will. But it's also then organized into three sections. We first have, what are these, remember? Seal judgments, okay? Uh, and, and we haven't even talked about this. What, what's the significance of each one of these sets of seven? For the seals, seals represent power and authority. Somebody's in charge of this, right? Somebody's opening this. And what we've seen in the book of Revelation is Jesus alone is worthy, right? as the one who is slain, to actually begin to open up the seals and see judgment brought upon the world. But the focus then of those, those seals is a suffering church. Remember the cry, how long, O Lord? 
right? And then it all ends, and who can stand? And you begin to see the church can stand, the church can endure. And so it's encouragement to the suffering church. But then we have this next round of trumpets that we see in the, the trumpets, at least in scripture, are sometimes a call to war. At other times, it's, it's a warning. And so as the trumpets are blown, we begin to see that the images point us back to the book of Exodus, right? They, all, they almost map directly onto the plagues of the Exodus, and, and, and the plagues, the judgments that we see bring, coming forth from the trumpets are, are actually to point us towards the unrepentant sinner. Because as the plagues come, as judgments come, people are just like Pharaoh. Did Pharaoh repent? No, it was through the plagues, through the judgment that God brought upon Egypt, Pharaoh just stuck his heels in the ground. There's just no way. And he became more and more hardened through the process of judgment rather than calling out for God's mercy, which was what God was doing. God was saying, hey, here's mercy. Come to me. Come to Yahweh. And no mercy. But... He remained unrepentant, and so the judgments that we see in the trumpets are really a call to unrepentant sinners to come to the mercy of God. Don't stick your heels in. You know this life is too much. You know that nothing in this life ultimately satisfies. You've been spinning your wheels for years now trying to satisfy your heart with the things of this world, and it never is satisfying. You need one beyond yourself. You only need one greater than yourself. You need an infinite God. That's what you were made for. You will not be satisfied in anything less than an infinite God. That's why you have ongoing, endless desires. So the seal judgments, they focus on the authority of Christ and tend to the suffering church. The trumpet judgments are a warning to the unrepentant sinners, calling them to mercy. But now, finally, we're turning our attention to the bold judgments. And when we think of bold judgments, we're not thinking of these deep basins, we're actually, it's more of a saucer pan, right? And the idea is, is that with one slight tilt of the saucer pan, the contents are quickly removed. And there's no catching a little bit. There's no slowing that down. Once they are tilted, the contents are coming forth. And so it's to emphasize the imminence, the soonness, if you will, Right? The finality, once it's tilted, it's done. But it's these judgments then that are given in view of God's throne and the, the clash of the text that, that Tyler just read is is, 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 is God truly just? And from heaven you hear, he is just. And from the earth you hear, curses. And so it stands, is God's wrath right? Now in all of this, to just kind of sneak this in there, um, we, we are not going through this text, you know, with charts of the tribulation and all that kind of stuff. Um, to be honest with you, I'm not, I don't think Revelation is supposed to be read that way through a chart. In fact, what we'll find even in this text is God says, I'm coming like a thief. 
Oftentimes that is pre-tribulational language. And I know for some of you, you're like, what is pre-tribulational right? But some of you know, right? right? Jesus is coming again at the end after all the judgments have come, after the tribulation has been underway. We see him now coming, his parousia, his second coming is at the end of all of this, the battle of Armageddon. And once again, to just, we're, we're not gonna get into the details of the imagery here, but this idea of Armageddon was just a place in the Old Testament where God's people had many battles. It's the Valley of Megiddo, right? And, and so, again, I don't think this is all to be taken literally. Some do. I don't, I don't think that we're, you know, all of God's people are going to be lined up at this particular place and time and that the rest of the world is going to be lined up kind of like a Lord of the Rings, you know, the, the Two Kings movie where it's, okay, it's this, this, these two sides coming to this final moment of battle. I don't know that it's going to be all literal like that. Again, when we come to apocalyptic literature, we're, we're to err on... Uh, the metaphors and the imagery of it, not creating literalness out of it. Because once again, the images of the apocalyptic genre, how are we supposed to interpret them? Are we supposed to interpret them according to our newspaper tabloids? Is that how we deal with the images that we find? Oh, the locusts, that must be Apache helicopters. Right? Oh, that's 666, that must be the vaccine. I've heard it all, and it actually dealt with the issue of the vaccine. People thinking, oh, this vaccine is actually the mark of the beast, the 666. We shouldn't do that. We've covered the imagery of what 666 actually means, but how have we dealt with the imagery? Do we just get super literal about it all? No, what we find is that the images in Revelation point us back to the images of the Old Testament. And there we begin to have like meaning downloaded so that we can make sense out of the book of Revelation. It's the way apocalyptic literature is intended to work. We're not supposed to take our newspaper tabloids and smash it onto the text and say, oh, now I understand the book of Revelation. That's a bad idea. It's to do it opposite. It calls us to know our Bibles. It calls us to search out the images in scripture so that we can kind of Get the hyperlinks from the Old Testament, download the meaning then into the book of Revelation. So that's been the way we've been moving through this whole procedure. And so even when it comes to this great battle that chapter 16 ends with, the battle of Armageddon, it's imagery. It's, there's going to be a climactic point between that which is good and that which is evil, that which is holy and that which is unholy, that which is clean and that which is unclean, between that which is true and right, and that which is merely counterfeit. That's Armageddon, right? Now, as we look at the bulls here, and I know I'm jumping around a little bit, so try your best to stay with me. Um, as we look at these bulls, what we come to find out is that these bulls do almost identical work to that of the trumpets. And this is important for us so that we don't get bogged down in the imagery this morning. When you compare the bowl judgments to the trumpet judgments, you actually find that they're both connected to the same text in the Exodus account. 
All right, so what we have is something of just recapitulation. It's kind of the same thing, again, just from a different perspective. And it comes with intensification and finality. They're bowls, they're being poured out. There's gonna be nothing left. There will be a finality to God's judgment. And so what we don't have is just kind of a linear progression of events, but something of a pattern, something of a recap, right? We're going back and we're seeing the same things happen again. So once again, if you put the trumpet judgments right next to the bull judgments, and you'd trace the imagery back to the Old Testament, you'd land up in the same chapters in the books of Exodus. They're drawing on the same themes. Let me just go through them very quickly so that then I can jump into the principal issue of the text, and that is the question of, is God's wrath right? So, when you look at the first bold judgment, you have judgment that comes on the earth. Right? They're sores. People have sores, and the idea is oozing sores. They are painful. But in the trumpet judgments, you have the same kind of judgment coming upon the earth, and yet it's hail and fire. But it's bringing destruction upon humanity, and these two images, the sores as well as the hail and fire, point us back to Exodus chapter 9, verse 8 and following. So what John is doing, in some sense, and what God is revealing to John is showing, hey, there's an overlap here from the bowls and the trumpets. They're just given from different perspectives for different purposes. And so the second bowl is directly related to the destruction of the sea. The sea turns to blood in the second bowl. The sea turns to blood in the second trumpet. And both of those point back to Exodus chapter 7. Same with the third bowl. There's the rivers turn to blood as well. Well, the third trumpet is rivers turn to blood, and they point us all back to Exodus chapter 7 once again. The fourth bowl is the sun scorches people, and then finally the sun is darkened, but this points us back to Exodus chapter 9 and into chapter 10. And then we see the fifth bowl. It refers to the demonic. Right? In the bowls, it refers to the throne of evil. There's darkness that arises because of it. But also then in the trumpets, there's this pit of evil, and we see the locust. And this is all referring to judgment upon the demonic, chapter 10, verse 4 and following of Exodus. And then, finally, the bowl judgments, the six. We see that the river Euphrates is dried up. In the trumpet uh, judgments, we see another reference to the Euphrates River and angels coming out of the river. And this points us all back to Exodus chapter 8, verse 2. With some of the issues, it's the plague of the frogs coming up out of the water, out of the Nile River. And then finally, uh, the seventh bowl, we have this final judgment, lightning and thunder and hail, and the, trump, the seventh trumpet is again lightning, thunder, and hail, and it points us back to Exodus chapter 9. I go through all of that simply to say that what we have in the bowls is a recap. We're seeing some of the same things happen all over again, and we've dealt with a lot of the imagery that's involved there, but I want then to get to the principle of the text. The question of God's justice. The question of, is God's wrath right? Once again, if you've ever led anyone to the faith, this question's got to come up. 
this problem of evil. Is God really good? I mean, even if I, if I tell a white lie, is that deserving of eternal hell? And the response to that should be, really? That's all you're guilty of? Right? And it's like, when you begin to really get past some of the, the logic that's there and get down to the bare bones of really what's happening when we question the wrath of God, that's when we begin to see God's wrath is actually right. So let me explain just a little bit from the text here. The first point that I want to bring before you is this. The wrath of God is right. Notice chapter 15, verse 5. Where do God's judgments come from? Where do these bowls usher from? Chapter 15, verse 5, they come from the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven. They come from the sanctuary of the tent of the witness of witness in heaven. The tent of witness takes us back to that Exodus account again, right? And it's a title that is used to refer to this tent of meeting or the tabernacle where specifically God's law was placed. In fact, the tent of witness, that idea of witness, some of your translations will say testimony, tent of the testimony. It's referring, witness, testimony, is just another name for God's law. It's where God's law resided. And we should know, think, think through the process of what's happening. The judgments of God are coming from the place of God's law. Now, if we would consider God's law, the Old Testament law in particular, God's law was given for the sake of human flourishing. Do you know that? I mean, just, just take the simple, like, uh, you know, Ten Commandments. Yeah, I probably shouldn't lie. Yeah, I probably shouldn't murder. Yeah, yeah, I probably shouldn't cover my, uh, my neighbor's wife. It's probably a good idea. All of these weren't just kind of rules that God threw together to just keep his people busy, some ad hoc, random, hey, here's some, here's some rules that you should probably think about keeping to. You know, busy yourself until I come back. God didn't arrange the laws for his people to be some sort of, like, religious hoops for them to jump through. They were for the express purpose of human flourishing. One of the things, even in our day, um, and, and it's just because it's come up in different conversations, is the issue of marriage. I see so many young folks saying, you know, what's, what's the big deal? You know, do I really need a certificate? You know, do I really need, you know, the government stamp of approval on my relationship? And the point is, is what you're missing out is your created design. And I, it, it, when you step into the foster care world and you begin to see the brokenness of families and you begin to see the downfall of the family and you see then that the burden of all of this then is on the shoulders of children and you sit back and you say, God's law is good that he would hold marriage to such a high standard. God's law was for the sake of human flourishing. Now hold that thought for a second. Because what we've seen in the book of Revelation is these constant referrals to beasts. God's law promotes human flourishing. But we have some very kind of beastly activity going on in the book of Revelation. You remember what the 
imagery of the beast points us back to. It points us back to the story of King Nebuchadnezzar. He exalted in himself, he exalted in his accomplishments, he determined what was right and wrong, and what did that make him? God stripped him of his humanity and actually made kind of a metaphor out of him to show us that when we reject God's law, when we reject Yahweh as the creator God, his design for life, when we reject him, we become less and less human. We become beastly. When I try to determine right and wrong, well, this is what I feel. Stop it. That's making yourself God by doing what you feel. That's not a good idea. It's not a good idea to do what you feel. It's bad. Maybe to get really raw, I wouldn't be married right now if I did what I felt. Do you get it? I wouldn't be pastoring right now if I did what I felt. My, my feelings need to be submitted to God's law. Right? This is the whole point then, is that what we've done is chosen, we've chosen to become beastly. I am going to determine what is right and wrong for me. And don't tell me about God. Don't tell me about his standard. Don't tell me about morality. Let me tell you. I'll tell you what's true and just. I'll critique the world out there. <laughs> we got too many like lawyers in the world on Facebook and whatnot trying to define and help and like critique and bring all, it's just creating all kinds of division. We're becoming beast. We're, we're biting and devouring one another when we seek to establish truth according to our own standards. Ain't nobody going to get along. It's going to create more confusion. We will become together beastly. Now, one of the texts outside of Revelation that sheds light on this dynamic is Romans chapter 1. Uh, uh, if you have your Bible, turn there, turn there, because you've got to just see it. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Again, speaking of God's wrath, speaking of God's judgment. It states this in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness do what? Suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. For folks that I interact with who are you know, whatever, agnostic or they, or even atheists, their, their arguments always bring them down to a point of accusation against God. <laughs> Which doesn't make sense. Why do you care so much if you don't believe that God exists? But it's written on their hearts in some sense. They, what, what is true about God has been plainly known because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. We could insert beastly. 
and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became what? Fools. To suppress God's truth, to reject God's law, I'm just going to say it, is to be a fool. And I, I, I don't say that as one who's gotten it all right. <laughs> right? I say that as one who, who knows, who knows the consequences of stepping away from God's law and trying to determine right and wrong and what will satisfy and how to live life according to my own standard of wisdom and what is right and wrong. But we become fool, we become beastly. Now, John chapter 3, here's another text, similar text. John chapter 3. Oh, this is good. It gets Jesus in the picture, right? Good old John 3.16, right? Amazing. God so loved the world in this context of love. Here's what the text goes on to read when oftentimes it's kept out of the, the popular reading of John. John chapter 3, verse 17, it says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love darkness rather than light. Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest the works should, their works should be exposed. We want to suppress the truth, even when our own hearts, filled with guilt and shame for the way that we're living, we want to suppress all that stuff. And the idea of suppressing the truth is taking that, uh, you know, that, that beach ball and shoving it under the water, trying to keep it down, trying to keep it down, but it keeps pushing up, right? That's how Romans would explain it. But now what's being explained in John is saying, like, I just don't want my darkness known. I, I want to enjoy my dark things. I want to enjoy kind of the, the things that bring me this temporary pleasure, right? And so I'm, I'm going to keep that in the dark. I'm not going to admit that to God. I'm not going to bring that to God. No way. I'm going to hold on to these things. Works done in darkness. The light has come, and the fact that the light has come is condemning. Do you get it? God doesn't bring judgment without providing incredible mercy. But we still, we still have the audacity to put God on trial. God, let me tell you how my life should have gone. Let me tell you what should have happened in the midst of my suffering. Let me tell you what kind of justice you should have brought to my life. I'm going to tell you how my life should have been. Who are you? Who are you? Seriously. You're a blip on the radar of time. You couldn't even find your keys yesterday. Right? And you're going to put God on trial. When the text, you know, these bowls are being poured out. And it is, it is. It's just like you, you have to stand back in shock. But it's like, who are we to put God on trial? We suppress the truth, and then we turn around, we put God on trial. When God is the one, chapter five, or 16, verse 5, he is the just one, as heaven declares. 
He has perfect perspective for what is just and what is unjust. He is the Holy One, which means also he is unlike us. He is creator God. He is way above us, way other than us, who is and who was. That means he's eternal. He's the one who's got all of eternity in scope. You got yesterday in scope. Like you're just, you're just too small to even consider bringing charges against Yahweh God. Your life is just this little blip on the radar. And I get, I'm not saying that like there's not grief in our lives and there's not hard things that we go through and that God doesn't invite, even as the Psalms would say, our questions. But when it comes to the wrath of God and the justice of God and the questions that we bring against God, we should not be putting him on trial. We shouldn't be holding him at a distance because we think he's gotten it wrong. But he does bid us come. Christian, with all your struggles to toss him at us, even, even anger. God, I don't like the way this is going. I don't like what I'm feeling. And Jesus says, come here. Let me throw you high on my shoulders and carry you through this valley of the shadow of death. This is what he does for us. Do you understand? But it's what makes the wrath of God right. We don't want human flourishing as God has determined it to be. We, all, we want our own ways. We want to fill ourselves with the things that the world provides. We don't want Yahweh God, although everything in this world tells us that he is there and we will stand accountable. And even when God begins to pour out his judgment, it doesn't bring people to their knees. It doesn't cause them to, to then, then call out for mercy. Oh God, have mercy upon us. It, it, it doesn't it cause them to look to Jesus. Say, Jesus, help me. What does it do? Check out verse 9. They were scorched with fierce heat, and what did they do? They blasphemed the name of God. They cursed him. Verse 11. Once again, they cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. And it all ends. It all ends. The seventh bowl. Right? This final day of judgment. We've seen all the imagery there. It just relates to this final day of judgment. Jesus is coming again, and he's coming to set things straight. And what happens? They curse God for the plagues that they've endured. From the tent of meeting, from the standard of God's law, from the, the place of God's law, right? This law that should lead to human flourishing. We suppress, God, we don't want you, we don't want you, we don't want you. Even when God says, hey, his, check this out. His law even states, if you go back to Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 26, when you don't keep God's law and you suppress the truth and you, you just kind of harbor yourself into your own place of darkness so you can enjoy the things that you want to enjoy, he says, I'm going to pour out a sevenfold judgment upon you. God said that all the way back in Leviticus chapter 26. Why is John utilizing three cycles of seven? Because the world has rejected God. They are suppressing his truth. And now that he's pouring judgment upon them, it's not this final. There are cycles of judgment that is to call people to repentance. And even what we found is where we failed to keep the law, who has finally kept the law? Jesus. Right? We, we, here, here's the deal. When we suppress God, 
We, we would actually rather be that we can gain some goodness before God. Why? So we continue to keep God on trial. We could always continue to keep something against him. Well, God, I've achieved this and I've achieved that. Some of the religiosity in our world is just that. It's just stoking your own pride so you can keep God on trial. I can look on down on others who aren't as good as me. The fact of the matter is I can never keep God's law. I could never keep it. But who has kept it? Who faithfully fulfilled the law of God but Jesus? And why did he do that? For you. So that instead of facing wrath, you might know mercy. Right? This is the beauty of this text. Is God's wrath right? And the answer is yes. God has set a moral law for our good, for our human flourishing. And even when we've failed that and we're deserving of this wrath, he still provides mercy. And even when God has provided all of that, we still reject him. God is right in his wrath. Look, I don't like the, these texts any more than you do. They're hard to stomach. They're hard to, you know, again, 100-pound hail crushing people. Man, that's a, ugh. But that's what the imagery is supposed to do. It's to be like, whoa. Whoa, I, bet, I, I, I better think through this a little bit. God's wrath is right. He is the just one. He is the holy creator God. He is the one who is and who was. He is the eternal one, right? So it's not our role to keep God on trial, right? And our sense of goodness in this world should never be determined by some sort of social sliding scale. You know, comparing ourselves with others, no. The comparison is always with God, the one who's created you and with the law that he has given us. So the issue isn't kind of working our own way up to some degree of religious goodness, but the answer is humbling ourselves before his mercy. The reason why people endure his judgment is because they just won't humble themselves. Did you catch that? It's humility. It's not coming with all your goodness to God. Saying, have mercy upon me. I'm so good. No. <laughs> no, it's coming to him saying, I'm not good. I got shame. I got sin. I got guilt. I'm a mess. And I, I'm going to stop holding you on trial for, for really the mess that I've made in my own life. Again, like, be careful and when it comes to the suffering that we endure. God invites all those questions and all those struggles, right? But God's wrath is right. Now, second in this text, we find, and more brief, the wrath of God is final. The wrath of God is right, and the wrath of God is final. And so what you find in chapter 15 and 16 is really these bookend uh, passages that refer to the finality of God's judgment. So just check it out briefly. Chapter 15, verse 1. It says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is what? 
finished. All right, now go down to chapter 16, verse 17, the final bowl judgment. It says, The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is what? Done. Done. As I heard one pastor say recently, don't these phrases remind us? Don't these phrases remind us of another phrase in Scripture that was cried out from the cross itself? It is finished, Jesus said. The wrath of God fully absorbed the winepress of the wrath of God. Jesus endured. He endured wrath as the Holy One. (laughs) Why? So that we might know mercy if we would but humble ourselves before Him. That's the gospel message. Jesus crying out, it is finished which is his offer of mercy to all of us who are guilty. That's the bottom line. So here's the point, though, to this finality of judgment. Everyone in this world will either face the finality of God's judgment here or the finality of God's judgment through Jesus who has paid the price for us. Do you get it? You're either going to have to face that finality of judgment alone, or you'll run to Jesus for mercy who has faced it for you. And you know what? It doesn't mean that all of a sudden you're going to become this great, wonderful, moral, upstanding person without any troubles and without any difficulties. When you humble yourself before Jesus who has paid the price for you, guess what tomorrow then offers you? Mercy. And guess what the next day offers you? Mercy. And the next day, (laughs) through your ups and downs, more mercy. Right? Judgment is final through Jesus. And now mercy is all you receive. Today, mercy. Tomorrow, mercy. When I fail again, there's going to be mercy. Mercy. No judgment. But for those who continue to reject Yahweh, continue to not humble themselves, well, this will be their final judgment. The wrath of God is right, but it is also final. The question is, where do you stand? Under his wrath or under his mercy? And if you stand under his wrath, today could be the day of salvation. Life doesn't need to be lived under the the burden of always trying to suppress the truth and run after all the things that the world provides. It will not satisfy And even when you try to cope with all your dissatisfaction, that stuff ain't going to get you anywhere. Whether it leads you to drugs or alcohol or endless relationships or whatever it is to kind of cope with all the emptiness that you feel inside, it'll never go away 
and it won't go away until the finality of God's judgment comes. And at that point, there will be left no opportunity for mercy. Now, some people would say at this point, Dan, you're being manipulative. You're throwing this idea of judgment before us so that we choose Jesus. Just, I just want to say, that's another lie of the enemy. <laughs> like if my kid was running out into the street, I wouldn't just say, you know what, we'll have a conversation later and try to ease into these kind of things. If he was running out into the street, car's coming, Judson, turn, come to me. Don't face that oncoming trap. In a real way, what this is doing is the same. It's not manipulation. It's trying to get you simply to recognize the urgency of the moment that you should not live your life right? just kind of dancing under the judgment of God, thinking, oh, I got this. Or maybe I'll come to Jesus at some point, you know. I'll come, I'll come to my wits at some point. After I'm done running and doing my thing, and after I've really come, kind of surveyed everything, gotten it. What does Jesus say? Behold, I come like a thief. He comes like a thief. You delay him, he'll come when you're not expecting. This ain't manipulation. This is just saying judgment's coming. It's coming. There's a finality coming. And so the call is to bend your knee to the mercy of Christ. It is life and life abundantly. He, he wants the best for you. He wants the best for you. Our God is not stingy. Our God is not some sort of legalist. Our God is one who deeply loves his own. He is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Even God, in some sense, doesn't like the idea of this finality of judgment. He wants all to come to repentance. He wants you to know life and life abundantly what it is to be truly human after the order of Christ, who was the perfect man. So, I also want to throw in this. When Jesus says it is finished, Christian, it's finished. When Jesus says it, it is finished, it's done. This life, no matter how many mistakes you make, right? There's mercy, not condemnation. There's mercy, not judgment. Sometimes as Christians, we just get under the weight of this, oh man, I've done so much wrong, and I'm messing up, and we, we feel this weight. We're always living up to some sort of approval. Stop! There's freedom. <laughs> There's mercy. Romans 8, there is therefore no, no condemnation. Even if you trip up today, no condemnation. Jesus took it. It is finished. It's done. There is no condemnation for you. God's not retaliating changing his mind on the deal, so to speak. No, he has mercy for you. So, for those two groups of folks, I want to pray for as we finish up uh, this morning. So I'm going to ask the musicians, come on up.
And I want to pray specifically for those who say, yeah, man, I've, I've never come to faith in Jesus. Never come to faith in Jesus. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call you to faith. <laughs> and for those of you who have come to faith, but you feel this sense of condemnation at times, that's the enemy. He accuses, he accuses, he accuses. He has no teeth when it comes to that lie, right? Because Jesus has said, it is finished. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your kindness and mercy to us. Thank you that you care about our human flourishing. Thank you that you've given us law, but you've also given us one who has perfectly fulfilled the law when we haven't. Jesus, we honor you right now as the true Savior and healer of our hearts. And we ask even right now, Jesus, that by your spirit you would provoke the hearts of those who don't know you here and those online, that, that they would come to know that they've only been but suppressing the truth, and now today is the day of salvation, that they should come to you, that they should see something of the, the stone of the tomb rolled away, coming from death and into life because they've humbled themselves before you. They'd open up their arms and say, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Folks, God will have you. He will have you. There's no religious things for you to do. And if you think, well, you don't know the mess that I've come from, your mess is no match for his mercy. It's no match for his mercy. So I encourage you, wherever you're at right now, you don't have to come forward. You don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to raise a hand between you and the resurrected Jesus. It's simply to bow your knee before him and say, Lord, here's my life. I've been running. I've been trying to do life on my own, and I submit myself to you. I humble myself to you. Just know this, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He's there waiting for you to humble yourself before him. He's waiting to receive you, even as the prodigal son story. The prodigal son left home. He squandered his father's wealth, and yet he comes crawling back, and the father receives him with joy. He doesn't hold his sin against him. He doesn't call him to clean up himself. No, he embraces him. He calls him his son, and he brings him in to celebrate that his son was once dead, but he's now alive. This is what Jesus holds out for you today if you've never known him. He's there, arms wide, ready to receive you. It's to say, Jesus, I'm guilty. I'm guilty of running. Here's my life. Take me, have me, be Lord and Savior. Deal with the guilt of my life. Deal with the shame of my life. And may you give me life and life abundantly. Simply calling out to him today and you will be saved. You will be saved. He will have you. He's not stingy, arms wide open, ready to receive you. So I call you, I just call on you. Make the decision now to humble yourself before him and receive him in jesus mighty name and lord I, I also then pray for my brothers and sisters who might struggle from just condemnation it is finished it is finished jesus is satisfied that wrath in full and so god i pray that as the enemy would bring about just kind of accusations to mind, oh God, would it be that the truth of your word, it is finished, would ring in their hearts and in their minds. 
God, I pray blessing upon them. Surround them by your spirit. Give them truth to think of, not the condemning feelings that the enemy would bring about. Give them freedom. Give them freedom. Give them freedom. And even when trial would come into our lives, when sickness and loss and difficulty would come into our lives, oh God, protect your people. The loss and difficulties, physically even, are not your judgments upon them. You won't waste the trials, you won't waste the tragedies, you won't waste it. You will discipline us through it. You will carry us through it. You won't waste it. But God, we pray that you would not allow, that you would guard your own from any kind of accusations from the enemy, that we would think that because we're going through suffering, that we must have done something wrong, that we're feeling condemnation for these things. Lord, let it not be. Let it not be. Show your love, as Romans 5 says, God, pour your spirit upon them and let them feel something of your incredible love for them afresh, even right now. God, show them your love. We know it objectively in the cross, but Lord, we need to feel it. Again, as, as a father would just raise up a child into his arms and express his incredible love for his child, Lord, let it feel like that today, that your spirit would come upon us in a way in which we feel like we're just captivated right up into the arms of the Father. God, give us an experience of your love, not just kind of a working mental knowledge. We need to feel it, Lord. Tend to us, we pray. And God, I also just, I just pray for strength. I pray for strength. I pray that you would just provide strength amidst difficulty. God, thank you that there's no boulder in our life that you can't lift. There's no burden too big for you. But you are the just one. You are the holy one. You are the one who is and who was. You are Yahweh, and so we look to you as the one who alone can shoulder the heavy weights of our life. So God, we ask, for blessing, but we also ask, God, would you sweep through and grant healing to your people? God, I, I, I pray for just resilience of strength amidst physical difficulty. I'm going there, sorry. But Lord, I pray even for unique strength for just the burdens uh, that are carried through great grief. Lord, your mercy is new every morning. It's new every morning, and yet those burdens of grief can just be so exhausting. With mercy, there's, there's still waking up to, to the heaviness of grief once again and all the surrounding difficulties that come there, um, come with it, God. So we pray that your mercy would abound in unique ways. Thank you that your mercy is, it comes in different shades and shapes, that it's not just kind of a quick download, but it's, it, it's specialized for every need that we have. So God, would we feel your mercy extended to your own 
in a way that fits the deep needs of our hearts and life. So we, Lord, we just love you. We bless your name. We bless your name. We bless your name. We bless your name. Thank you that you care about us. Mercy is for us. If there are anyone else here that you just say, yeah, I'm, I got uh, physical needs, um, I want to, or maybe it's like, I want to respond to Jesus. I want to come. I have never, I've never followed him. Never followed him. Never stepped out and humbled myself before him and said, Jesus, I, I need you. Will you have me? Let this be the time. I'm just going to open up the front, and I'd encourage folks, if it's to pray through physical needs or emotional needs or spiritual needs, just to come forward, hang out here, whether it's sitting in the chairs, sitting at uh, the front step here, just to take a little bit of time to pray uh, as, as this final song is sung. I'm just going to invite you, do what you feel led to do kind of a thing um, in these moments. How's the, how's the Lord leading? What kind of prayer do you need? We're a small crew. We don't have to do anything fancy, right? simply just opening up our arms and saying, come, God, work. I got need, and you got mercy, <laughs> so I need it. So I just call you to respond at this point. Come forward, take time to pray, and interact as the final song is sung.